Welcome to part two of the Clutter Family Murders. On this episode, we're going to discuss Richard Hickok's partner in crime, Harry Edward Smith. And let me tell you, we think it might be one of the most interesting trees yet. Please note that this episode contains discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Murderous Roots, a podcast that explores the family history of notorious killers. I'm Denise, and with me is Zelda. Now, let's get started. Well, hey. Well, hi there, Zelda. How are you today? I'm good. It's a beautiful, sunshiny day here in the Chicagoland area. <laughs> it is. <It's laughs> is that I allowed? Have to- uh, no, I'm I'm not sure that anybody told the weather it's November and it's supposed to be gray until March now, but <laughs> I'm certainly not going to tell them. Well, I think it helps with the view that you have nowadays, because when it is a bright yeah. day, you can actually see it and enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's beautiful, because I can see the lake. If you yeah. look between the buildings, it's not like I'm like lakefront, but um, it's it's beautiful and this has been such a great week and I have to tell you, the folks we have been learning about these last couple of weeks have been so fascinating. Oh yeah, I'm just like so intrigued and I honestly think the person we're talking about today is even more intriguing than the person we talked about last week. Right? So last week was part one of the Clutter Family Murders, and we covered Richard Eugene Hickok. And now we're covering his partner in crime, Perry Edward Smith. And I thought Hickok's tree was fascinating, but it is in no comparison to Smith's. And I got to tell you, I think I sent you a message about this at one point. I think he was, his family is cursed. You, yes. And I'm like, I could totally see it. And honestly, first of all, thank you for sending me that extra information that you found. Oh, you're it welcome. was so helpful because as I was starting to piece things together, a few things just kind of really pop out at me about his life and the way things happened. So it's just been absolutely crazy. Um, I'm not going to go into anything about his parents because I know you're going to cover that. Oh yeah. And that's, Um, that's way complicated. (laughs) That's so complicated. But one of the things that I thought was interesting is, you know, Perry Edward Smith, he was born in 1928, as you know, October 27th. I believe that's a feast day of a famous Catholic saint, but it's not coming to me. September 27th is St. Vincent de Paul. So I'm like, why isn't October 27th coming to me? Anyway. I don't have the saints days memorized. I just know my saints day and that's it. So there you go. I feel like I should like have this calendar up every day. Anyway, the point of all this is he was born in Huntington, Nevada, which even now, I mean, back then it was nothing. Now it's even less than nothing because it's been abandoned. It doesn't even exist anymore. And Elko County, the entire county, only has 48,000 people in it. I feel like I should share my neighborhood has like 200,000 people in it. So I can't even imagine. Um, And I've actually been in Elko. We got gas there once. It's right off Interstate 80. It was absolutely fascinating. So his childhood, 
Now, he came from an abusive alcoholic family, and I don't want to go into a lot of details about his parents, as I said, but suffice to say, there are some children we look at and go, how did they turn to the side of darkness and evil? Right. We're not going to be saying that about Perry. I mean, no. he he was he had a very troubled childhood. He was abused physically and emotionally. He was in a couple of different orphanages. His family was basically itinerant, and he only got a third grade education. Education, which, when you think about it, it's especially terrible because he actually had a decent intelligence. Right. You know, with a decent education, he probably could have done a lot better for himself, even in terms of criming, you right. know. <laughs> like, I can't remember if it was him or Hickok. I'm thinking it might have been him. He had like an IQ of a 111 or something. I think it was Hickok who was oh. like average intelligence. Right. And Perry was above average intelligence. Right. Okay. Um, and loved to read and um, was quite literate, had a very artistic side. None of that excuse is murdering people. Here's the thing that's interesting. So apparently when he was eight, he was arrested. And I can't seem to find a lot of details about that. Right. But it seems to have been some sort of thievery. I'm like, okay, well... I hate to say it, but what eight-year-old hasn't shoplifted at some point, you know? <laughs> I mean, I admit I was six years old when I shoplifted a candy bar, and I still feel intense guilt to this day about shoplifting that candy bar. Oh, my gosh. You, you haven't gone to reconciliation on that yet? Oh, I totally have. I mean, God <laughs> has forgiven me. I have not forgiven myself. In fact, I felt so guilty about it, I didn't even eat the candy bar. Oh, so it wasn't even worth it. Yes, the nuns raised me right, you know? <laughs> So, but one of the things that really struck me is that, okay, he apparently had quite a hot temper, as one might expect. He wanted a better life. At age 16, he joined the United States Merchant Marine. And then later, he joined the United States Army and he served in the Korean War. He got a bronze medal. And during the time he was in the war, he apparently spent some time in the stockade because <laughs> he was carousing. Oh, wow. And he apparently got into fights with Korean civilians and other soldiers. But I'm like, that's like every effing plot of MASH. Right? So I'm like, okay, that wasn't anything. There was literally nothing to indicate that he would go on this horrific crime spree. No violence. No violence. There was no violence up to that point on his part. Violence done to him, but nothing yes. that he had really done other than what you might consider perhaps overblown fights with your siblings. Right. But again, nothing that some good rage management wouldn't really resolve. Well, after he got out of the military, he was honorably discharged again and in, 19, in 1952. And then he stayed with an army friend for a while in Tacoma, Washington. And he was employed as a car painter. So like normal life, right? Mm -hmm. Well, then the man bought a motorcycle. <laughs> and although they think it could have been adverse weather conditions, they really just felt it might have been his need for speed. But he was in a terrible accident and he almost died. Um, had a lot of broken bones, and he spent six months in the hospital. His legs were permanently disabled, and he suffered from chronic leg pain the rest of his life. So to help control the, play, the pain, he consumed an excessive amount of aspirin and apparently became addicted to aspirin. I didn't even know that was possible. Exactly. I was like, aspirin addiction is a thing? Who knew? So I looked it up. Because, of course, one cannot just live in the mystery. Right. And it turns out that, like, 2% of people who are addicted to drugs are addicted to aspirin. Oh. And the way it shows up, apparently you can get high if you take enough. 
but it's very dangerous because oh. you can bleed out. You know, you right. get stomach chronic overuse leads to like major stomach problems and kidney problems and well, and, and things will like that. The blood, so then it mm -hmm. even more. Yeah, you get bruising, you get all kinds of things that can happen. But one of the things that was probably most immediately felt was you get really bad headaches. If you try to wean oh. off the aspirin and then you take more aspirin to take care of the headaches and he was in chronic pain anyway from all of his damage. Well, here's the thing that caught my attention in the process of all of this. Much like Dick Hickok, he had a bad head injury as a result of this accident. Mm -hmm. He had a skull fracture. And what's interesting to me is in nowhere, nothing I could find in the research mentions the skull fracture except the document you sent me from the prison that documented he'd had a skull fracture. Right. The FBI background, I believe, on him. Yes. And I was like, hold the phone. We have another traumatic brain injury here. Mm -hmm. So I decided, because this is fascinating, to me to look up what is the correlation between traumatic brain injury and violent crime. And it turns out they've done lots of studies on this. And apparently there is a direct known link between traumatic brain injury and violent crime. And most of the people who are in jail, particularly women, which I found interesting because women so rarely are in jail for violent crime. Yeah. You know, for the, for the most part, women self-inflict violence rather than inflict it on others. Mm -hmm. Opposite for men, but never mind. <laughs> never mind that part. For almost all the women, it looks like, who were in for violent crime, there was a traumatic brain injury. Oh. For men, it's up to 85% of men who were, who were convicted of a violent crime well, had a traumatic brain injury. And football players in particular become a focus of that. And we've seen that with some of the football players. They tend to be have problems with violence in their homes and otherwise. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, of course, football players, oh, my God, what their bodies go through. Right. Like... I uh, the, honestly, I mean, I make fun of the salaries football players get, but honestly, how much would it cost for you to live permanently damaged? How mm -hmm. much would you want to be paid if you knew you were going to be permanently damaged and live a shorter life? Well, yeah, and then their careers are a lot shorter than the average person. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it was just fascinating to me to find this out because I Perry is one of those people I look at like I kind of looked at Dick, but not quite as hard to be honest. To think, but for that he probably would have had a kind of decent life, you know? Yeah, he always kind of, you know, because of the way he was raised, right. there was a lot of moral ambiguity in what he did. But he was a person who wanted to better himself and was trying to do that, then gets into this horrible accident and then does these inexplicably horrible things. Mm -hmm. And um, not, the, you know, sympathy for a murderer. I have sympathy for everybody who's been abused. So, um, wow. and of course, I don't believe in capital punishment, but... <laughs> Right. <laughs> the point of all of this being that it is fascinating to me and it makes me wonder why, not why, but think of the possibilities if we could actually cure brain injury. Oh my goodness. That would be amazing. Could you, I mean, could you even imagine? Mm -mm. The world would and be a better place though, I would think. I would think so. And so one of the other interesting things is that with head injuries, about 8.5% of the general population has a history of traumatic brain injury. I happen to be one of them. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if you are or not, although you might be. And we didn't turn out criminal. I, have, well, I can promise you I've killed no one. Um, I, and actually, my brain, my brain injury wasn't very bad. I mean, it was just like a okay. little bit of a hairline. And then my mom would debate me and say, no, they said there was nothing wrong with your head. But I had a concussion, oh. so... <laughs> 
Yeah. Well, and a bad concussion can honestly, it can mask a TBI, especially depending on when, mm-hmm. you know, how long ago it was, right. you know, because mine happened in college and it was literally written off as a concussion. And it wasn't until decades later when they did a brain scan. They were like, when did you have a TBI? And I'm like, never. And it took one of my brothers reminding me, remember when you hit your head really hard in college and you were kind of out of commission for a few weeks? And I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's probably when that happened. <laughs> um Anyway, it explains a lot, but, and I have never committed a crime since then. I just feel like I should point that out, that it doesn't mean you're going to naturally turn to crime, but I do find it fascinating that of all the inmates, not even violent crimes, but any crimes, depending on what jail was reporting, 25 to 87% of inmates reported having experienced a head injury or TBI as compared to 8.5% of the population. Well, and I would think that Perry, having been abused as a child, might have had more head injuries than we even know. I completely agree. So this poor kid didn't have much of a chance in life to begin Mm -hmm. with. And then, of course, he's arrested and he ends up, well, okay, so first of all, He has the accident, Mm -hmm. spends quite a bit of time in jail. He gets out of jail and he commits a crime. Well, the thing that I thought was fascinating about this, I'm going to pull up the list of what it was he stole. So he ended up that what got him into the Kansas penitentiary where he met Hickok Mm -hmm. and they devised this scheme to kill these people. Here's why he was there. He stole some stuff. It was burglary. A box with a drawer, some sandpaper, uh, a ruler, a pliers, a piece of a bandsaw blade, a piece of a file, a jar of glue, two pieces of rubber inner tube, a roulette game, and one stinger. I have no idea what a stinger is, but it seems like it would be perhaps a tool of some sort. Any of our listeners, if you know what it is, let us know. (laughs) I could Google it, but it's more fun to get calls from listeners. So I'm looking at this and going, okay, this had, I mean, if you squint... 25 bucks yeah. you know back back in 1957 now did i send you his arrest record um i don't think you did let well, me check i should have and i i think let part me of see. the problem and part of the reason he got thrown in prison for the burglary which okay i'm sorry he got five to ten years for that yeah and like, that's ridiculous. I don't understand. But he uh, he was being sought in New York City because he had unlawful flight to avoid prosecution. So it wasn't so much that he stole, but he ran away on top of it. And, and so then he got five to ten. Mm-hmm. But see, this is how our justice system is just completely broken. Well, I think it was worse back then, though. I mean, you would hear about people in the 30s to 50s getting arrested for stealing a loaf of bread and being thrown oh, yeah. into like San Quentin mm-hmm. for years. Oh, oh yes. I truly believe our justice system is better because, you know, do you, is are people like laughing about the lynchings now? No. no. <laughs> I mean, is um, there room for improvement? Yes. Definitely room for improvement. But it just, I, I find this, this whole thing fascinating that he, you know, this peculiar set of circumstances that put the two of them in the same place where they decide they're going to do these terrible things. It just, I don't know, it just kind of blows my mind. And then while he was there in um, 1957, it was determined that he needed to be put into solitary confinement because they felt he was an unstable character and prone to violence. And it kind of makes you wonder, but there's no, I haven't found anything documented where he actually got into some sort of a fight. Oh, here it is. Here's where you sent it to me. I did send Um, it. Okay, good. You did send it. They had burglarized a sales barn. 
They were apprehended and later escaped from the county jail and was recap later recaptured in New York State. So he'd done some burglaries, but again, there was nothing violent right. until the murders. Right. So I don't know. It just the whole thing is so crazy, which makes me understand why Capote wanted to study them. Right. Because I was looking at Hickok and going, okay, he's interesting, but he's not in cold blood interesting. You know what I mean? And meanwhile, this Perry Edwards, Perry Edwards Smith, it's like, oh, I totally get this. So anyway, he's in jail in Kansas. He meets Dick Hickok and he's and Hickok's released in 1959. But Perry Smith actually gotten released earlier, but they kept up their acquaintance during that whole time. Mm -hmm. We went over everything that happened up you know, to the point, so I'm not going to go over all the cut right. stuff that happened with the cutters again. The clutters. I, I keep saying cutters. I it's the clutters. <laughs> uh -huh. It's the clutters. I just find that, you know, to round this all out, I find him fascinating. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think we definitely need to do something about the brain injury stuff. Oh, yeah. As a society, not just to help individual people, but think of all of the crimes that would not be committed if people hadn't gotten hit on the head too hard or if we could cure that. so or, or catch that stuff early enough and do something and find treatments for it. Right. And actually really take it seriously. But with the way our healthcare system is right now, it's a cost benefit. Mm -hmm. That's that's They don't look at, oh, is your health worth saving? It's like, is it worth the cost to help your health? Right. Well, I mean, that's why when I um, was hurt in college, I didn't have health insurance. Mm -hmm. So they literally just looked at my head, said, hey, you have a concussion and sent me on my way. They never did any kind of scan or x-ray or anything. Ugh. And I look back and in a way it probably was okay because back then, what could they have done? Brain surgery hadn't gotten that far back right. in the 80s. So they probably probably would have been worse treatment than it was to just suffer with it. Anyway, this was fascinating. I have nothing more to say about this crazy guy. <laughs> what have you got for us, Denise? Well, I'm going to kind of give a quick summary of why I think this family is cursed. And I went through and I did a count and I might be missing people. So keep in mind, these counts might be a little low from the actual number. And I didn't get to everybody in the tree, but I got pretty far. There are at least four suicides, wow. one admission to a psychiatric facility, mm -hmm. 10 divorces or multiple spouses, mm. and 20 early deaths. Oh my gosh. So this family is overwhelming. And as I started to work on it, I mean, I spent like a couple of days just trying to get through the first generation, which is just Perry's siblings and his parents. Mm -hmm. It was very complicated. So to make it a little easier, I'm going to do a timeline for his family tree. Now, his parents were John Tex Buckaroo Smith and, I'm sorry, I can't help but laugh at that one, and Florence Buckskin, okay? And we're going to start with John because, or Tex, I should say, and that's why I'll call him throughout so it's a little bit more clear. He was born in January 1893 in Harrison, South Dakota to Johann Smith and Magdalena Adriana Vanderlei. So you might be guessing from the last names, he came from a Dutch background. His family moves to Montana by 1906. And I know this because his father dies in Montana in April 1906. Texas 13. Ten years later in December, he marries his first wife, Florence Gibbler. She was a young woman. I was going to, Gibbler. Yeah. Like from Kimmy Gibbler. Yeah, from uh, Full House. Yeah, Full I, House. Thought, I thought yeah. the same thing. 
<laughs> it will be a famous name forever. Yes. She was a young woman from Southeast Illinois. He's 23. She's 22. They have a son four months after their wedding date mm. by the name of Stanley Albert in 1917. Now, in today's, um, oh, I don't know. Culture? Oh, thank you. In today's okay. culture, having a baby four months after getting married is not as frowned upon. But back then, that was kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. But it happened a lot more frequently than we'd like to admit. Mm-hmm. Apparently, um, my great-grandparents got married, and a few months later came my great-aunt. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Well, they say a happy young couple can make a baby happen a lot quicker than somebody Yes, that's is. so true. <laughs> <laughs> They have. In March 1918, John enlisted in the U.S. Army and serving in World War One. He was discharged in January 1919. In December 1919, their son, Donald Elwood, is born in Chateau, Montana. In the 1920 census, though, we find I find that John and Florence are no longer living together, and they were likely in the midst of a divorce. Now, Florence listed herself as married. I cannot find John anywhere, so he was probably traveling between places. But she lived with her parents, and their son, Stanley and Donald, lived with her uncle, John Gibbler, as well as her grandmother. Oh. So in 1921, Florence remarries, and she will marry three more times for a grand total of five marriages. Wow. Yeah. She was like Elizabeth Taylor before Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> she really was. And I can't, I, you know, it makes you wonder, was she just bad at picking men? Or was she not a good fit for men? You know, right. relationships. You don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have a note that there is, I cannot find any evidence that Tex maintained any sort of relationship with his sons. In fact, in Perry's inmate case file that we were talking about earlier, there is a mention that his father had no prior marriages or relationships. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So my guess is he never shared that information with anybody in his family that they had these half siblings wow Mm -hmm. um and when stanley and donald die there's no mention of tex or other smith siblings in their obituaries which to me solidifies that theory wow now son stanley enlisted in 1939 and served in world war ii in 1944 he married glory lee i love that name at the time he was stationed in orlando florida But the marriage was short. Glory filed for divorce in 1946. The reason? Extreme cruelty. Oh. Yeah. Mm. He did eventually marry again in Texas, where he had children and lived until his death in 2010. His brother, Donald Elwood, and he went by Elwood, um, married in 1939 to Hazel Stansbury, and they had eight children together. And it seemed like it was a happy relationship from all evidence. Like Stanley Elwood, enlisted in the Army during World War II, but then he was involved in a tragic accident on July 15, 1950. And let me share that story with you. Two Helena men were drowned Saturday night when their fishing boat capsized during a squall at Browns Lake between Lincoln and Helmville. The bodies of James C. Holsclaw and Elwood D. Smith, both 30 years of age, were recovered from the lake. Mm. Ted Anderson, Helena mechanic and brother-in-law of Holsclaw, survived the tragedy. Anderson gave this account of the drowning to Sheriff Ed Ellsworth of Powell County. The three were fishing from the boat when it was overturned by a sudden squall about 7.30 o'clock Saturday night. Holesclaw, who was unable to swim, clung to the boat while Smith and Anderson pushed the boat toward shore. About 65 feet from the shore, the boat went down. Smith and Anderson got to the shore, but Smith returned to help Holesclaw. Anderson had to run only a few hundred yards to find help, but when he and the others returned, Smith and Holesclaw 
had disappeared. Mm. Yeah. Sheriff Ellsworth and a crew of volunteers recovered the bodies about 4 o'clock morning. That's really sad. It really is. Hole's claw was fully clothed. clothed. Smith, who apparently had shed his clothes to swim ashore, was clad only in shorts. The sheriff said no water was found in Smith's lungs, and death may have been due to a heart attack. Oh, that's awful. I know. But, I mean, he was he was a hero. Sadly, you know, he wasn't able to save his friend. But mm-hmm. he, he sounds like he was a good guy looking out for his friend. Mm-hmm. Of Elwood's eight children, two would die young. Um, I believe the rest are still living, so I'm not even going to mention their names. Okay. And I'll, I'll discuss the two children El, of Elwood who died young in a little bit. I was going to mention that six years after Elwood died, his mother, Florence Gibbler, Smith, now Dykes, is found dead in her Elmore County, Idaho home. She killed herself with a gun to the mouth. Oh, my God. I know. She was 61. Oh, my God. Yeah. I, I saw the death certificate. I'm like, wait, what? That's really unusual for a woman to commit suicide that way. Mm-hmm. Wow. Exactly. Most women will use drugs or something else. They don't want to make a mess. Mm-hmm. Wow. So Texas and Florence's grandson, Ronald Dean Smith, this is the son of Elwood, and this would be Perry's half-nephew, was born October 1945. At the age of 19, he married Maureen. Two years later, they divorced, Maureen citing mental cruelty. Soon after, Ronald enlisted in the U.S. Army, serving time in Vietnam during the war. He was discharged in December 1971. Then in March 1974, he marries Maureen again. This time, it's he who files for divorce, citing fraud just over a month later. Wait, fraud? Do we have any more details? No, and I tried to find it. The only thing I've heard of in those type of situations is she was misrepresenting the situation or Mm -hmm. somehow is the implication. Oh, for sure. But I'm just kind of curious, like, what fraud was it? Was it how old she was? Was it prior children? Was it, what was it? So... Or maybe she was still involved in a relationship with somebody else. Entirely possible. So, but five years later, in March 1979, he kills himself Uh, by carbon monoxide with a hose in his truck. Oh, my God. He was 33. I know. This is, it's awful. Elwood's daughter, Danella Louise Smith, was born around 1950, also died at a young age at 45, while in the car with her husband, Francis Balserzik. On January 7th, 1996, in a head-on collision. Oh, my gosh. Right? This is why I'm going, is this family cursed? And we've barely gotten started. Wow. Yeah. So let's... I I think whoever is in this family who's currently alive, hie thee to a Mm -hmm. Catholic church and dump some holy water on yourself. (laughs) Even if you don't believe. Even if you don't believe, just just go do it. Because this is like demonic, right? Like take some holy water home, sprinkle it around your house, sprinkle it in your car, like break the curse. Right. Now back to Tex. By 1922, Tex is in Sacramento, California, over a thousand miles from his first family. It is there where he marries Florence Julia Pearl Buckskin, who goes by Flo. Now Flo and Tex are on the rodeo circuit. Hold the phone. Her name is Florence Julia Pearl Buckskin. And her nickname is Flo. Yes. Out of all of the beautiful names that could have been chosen, (laughs) she could have gone by Pearl. She could have gone. Okay. I will let you continue, but I just want to say poor decision. Well, it's the 20s. So maybe Flo wasn't seen the same way we do now. I mean, I still remember watching Alice Mm -hmm. and Flo being, you know, that sassy waitress. 
True. So Flo might have been a name for a cool person. Right. Uh, hard to believe, but we'll go with that. <laughs> Apparently, they met through the rodeo circuit, and they had their own team called Tex and Flo, and they were a bareback riding and roping team. Ooh, she was cool. <laughs> Probably. Um, in March 1923, their ha- they had their first child, a daughter, Fern Gloria Smith, who was born in Sacramento. In May 1924, they have a baby girl in Salt Lake City, Utah, who dies the day after she's born. Oh. Yeah, that's just heartbreaking. In July 1925, their son, James Tex, is born in Elko, Nevada. Then in August 1926, they have another daughter, Dorothy Florence Marie, who was born in Elko. I was just going to say, still a godforsaken place. Yes, it still is. And I have a postmaster alert. (gasps) Ooh, tell me. It's a temporary one. For two weeks in May 1928, Tex is the acting postmaster for Huntington, Nevada. Well, good on him. Finally a steady job for two weeks. Yes. (laughs) Because I don't know if you've noticed, you know, we've gone from California to Utah to Nevada. Which, as, you know, rodeo folk, that was is not surprising. But Mm -hmm. still, now they've got a family to feed. Exactly. And a few children. In October 1928, as you mentioned before, Perry's born in Nevada. Now, in 1929, the family ends up in Alaska. I don't know why. That hasn't been clear. But I do have a picture I will share on the website of the family in Alaska. Well, that's exciting. Now, here's the thing. There's a guy by the name of Guy Rocha. He is a Nevada um, historian. And he wrote an article in 2009 about the family's history and where they went and all this stuff. And he said, well, you know, the family was settled in Reno by 1933. And then he said all this stuff. I think some of the stuff that you got came from him about uh, what happened to Perry next and all that. But I'm finding some discrepancies. Okay. And it could be he has more information and they moved even more frequently than even I realized. Because in April 1930, I find the family back in Sacramento where Tex is working as an auto mechanic. Hmm. So then Guy Rocha said that the family settled in Reno by 1933. Highly possible. So to me, this means that Tex and Flo, what happens to them next, happens between 1933 and 1935. Because in the census, it asked, the 1940 census, and I mentioned this before about censuses, they'll ask different questions each cycle. And on this one, they asked where people were living in 1935. Mm. Which is great, because then you get a little bit more of an idea of where your family was. Mm-hmm. Well, Guy Rocha did not have access to the census when he wrote the article, mm-hmm. because the census records are released 72 years after the census is taken. Okay. So the 1940 census came became available in 2012. Okay. And I'm right now anxious, because in two years, the 1950 census comes out, and I can't wait to grasp onto that one. Because then I can see my mom in the census and my dad. Oh, okay. fun. Yeah. It's the little things in life that make a genealogist happy. Anyhow, so they asked where they lived in 1935. So in 1935, we find Tex living in Humboldt County, California. Hmm. Lo and her children are all living in San Francisco in 1935. Interesting. So that tells me they probably divorced between 1933 and 1935. Mm-hmm. Now, Rocha said Tex took custody of Perry after the divorce. But based on this, if he did, it wasn't for very long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to 
think you're correct on that because mm-hmm. what I've read has been when they got divorced, his wife took the ki- all the kids with her to San Francisco. And it wasn't yeah. until after she died that some of the kids went and went to Tex. And even then, most didn't. Right. So now in 1940, Tex is still in Humboldt County, but he's specifically living in Eureka, California, mm-hmm. and working as a truck driver on a WPA project. Ooh, steady employment. Yes. Now, for some of our listeners who might not know about WPA, um, it was created as part of FDR's New Deal. And it was to help the recovery from the Great Depression. And it's one of those things I wish we could do again. Because, I mean, it led to so much infrastructure building up. Mm-hmm. The WPA stands for Works Progress Administration. It was to provide jobs and income for the unemployed. In 1935, unemployment was at 20%. It mainly employed unskilled labor to carry out infrastructure projects. In its eight years, the WPA built 4,000 plus schools, school buildings, I should say, not schools, 130 new hospitals, 9,000 miles of storm drains and sewer lines, 29,000 new bridges, 150 new airfields. It paved and repaired 280,000 miles of road, and they planted 24 million trees. I got this information from history.com. One of the notable works of the WPA was the Hoover Dam. Oh, yeah. So uh, I forgot about that one. Most of the things that they did back then, we still use today. Right. Well, and when you just said that he'd been working on this in Eureka, California, mm-hmm. I just feel the need to, to share. It fascinates me how he, a person could live in a place like Eureka, California, and then move back to a place like Nevada. Because Eureka, yeah. far northern North California, it's right next to the Great Redwood Forest, the Sequoia National Forest, and it's beautiful. And Eureka's on the coast, yes. too. Yes. It's beautiful. And then they go back to this godforsaken hole in the (laughs) middle of the freaking desert in Nevada. I'm like, Mm -hmm. what the actual hell? (laughs) It is confusing. I do believe that Tech spent some more time up in Alaska as well, which Mm -hmm. also begs the question. Now, I can get why you might want to leave Alaska because it's not very populated. And if you want to be able to do more things, I mean, you're a little bit more limited in what you're able to do, Mm -hmm. I would imagine. Yeah. If you don't want darkness six months of the year, it's hard to live in Alaska. Right. I mean, it's beautiful, Mm -hmm. but it wouldn't be an easy life. But yeah, to end up in Nevada... Interesting. Now, Flo in 1940 is listed as a new worker, having been unemployed for 78 weeks, Hmm. and she had no income. She lives with her daughter, Fern, none of the other children, and they live at 792 Grove Street in San Francisco. Hmm. Fern is 17, and she has no job. Now, this is where it gets interesting. A Grace Arnold, who's age 62, from Mexico, is listed as the mother of James, Tex, Dorothy, and Perry at her home in San Francisco. It makes me think she was her fo- their foster mother. Oh, that would make sense. Mm-hmm. Not only that, but Perry is also found in the census another time for 1940. Now, now this happens on occasion, but it's odd when it does. And he was found as an orphan at the Albertinum, yeah, Albertinum Orphan Asylum in Ukiah, California, mm-hmm. run by Dominican nuns. Mm-hmm. And I looked up information on this orphanage, and I found this article from the Mendocino County Today um, from February 28th, 2014, talking about it. Oh. It said the Albertinum 
slash Trinity School began in 1895 as an orphanage and boarding school run by the Dominican Sisters of the Mission San Jose. In the middle of the 1960s, the Greek Orthodox Church took over the five-acre property on which it operated an institution for disturbed children called Trinity School. Now, this is the part which I can't wait to tell you. Trinity School was run by an Orthodox priest called Steve Ketsaris, who lost his daughter, are you ready for this, to the murderous crosstown charlatan Jim Jones. No. Yes. (gasps) Who was then fleecing his flock in Redwood Valley and for a time serving as foreman of the Mendocino County Grand Jury. Oh my God. Yep. Miss Katsaris became Jones's chief aide, and she falsely denounced her father as a child molester, the ugliest accusation a child can make against a parent, but one that Jones, a megaperv himself, often deployed against his enemies. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Did he ever clear his name? Was I, I'm not sure. I didn't look too deep into that, but I think he did. I don't think a lot of people took a lot of stock in what was said. Oh, my God. um, The school closed in 2009, and I believe it's still available for sale. I'm not sure. Oh, my God. Well, you know, when you mentioned that address they were living at on Rose Street in Mm -hmm. San Francisco, um, that's the Lower Hate neighborhood. Um, You've heard of Hate Ashbury? Asbury? Right. This Hate Fillmore. And um, and historically, um, I wouldn't say impoverished. It uh, I would say you know it was working class, and then it went downhill uh, through mm-hmm. the '60s and '70s. And now, of course, through gentrification, you know, it's now right. kind of a hipster place to be. But it would make sense that if somebody's you know a foster mom taking in that many kids, then right. um, they wouldn't be living in the posh part of town. Well, and the address I gave is actually where. Um, Flo and Fern were living. Oh, okay. Well, then that makes even more sense. Right. Interesting. Now, later that year, in August 1940, Flo marries Gail Helby. Mm. In 1943, Perry's brother, Jimmy, or James Tex, joins the U.S. Coast Guard for World War II. Hmm. Now, Fern, who's now going by the name Joy, marries a man with the last name Conwell. Mm. Around 1944, Dorothy marries James Hill. This is around the time that Perry was in the 10th grade, and that's where I learned he had dropped out of school, was in 10th, not, you know, and he joined the Merchant Marines. So this is all going around the same time. Okay. Fast forward to October 1947. So basically all the kids are working or married. October 1947, Flo dies. She is just two weeks shy of her 45th birthday. According to Rosha, Flo, and this is a quote from him, Flo died a destitute alcoholic whore. She was still married to Gail. I have a record of her funeral from the funeral home. Mm -hmm. And the cause of death is fatty degeneration of liver, Mm. which is something that can be caused by alcoholism, among other things. But based on the other evidence and what other people have said, it's probably the alcoholism. And it's interesting that you say that because a couple of other accounts I read is that she died from choking on her own vomit. Um, But apparently that is not the case. Another urban myth. Hmm. Well, there was another like contributory cause, but I couldn't read the handwriting. Okay. (laughs) Um, But there's an interesting note about that on that funeral sheet. There was a man by the name of Alfredo Rodriguez who paid for her funeral. Oh. It wasn't her husband. Mm -hmm. It was this other man. And the funeral cost $220.30. Wow. In today's money, that's 
25, almost $2,600. Wow. And I will post that on the website because it's kind of interesting to look at. Now, on October 13, 1949, James Tex marries Jean Miller in Los Angeles. Now they go to Seattle. I don't know if it was because they were going to move there or if they were visiting. I don't know the circumstances. Because on the 16th of November, this is just a month after they've gotten married, Jean kills herself after a domestic dispute. Oh my gosh. Two days later, James Tex kills himself. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Wow. It's it's tragedy after tragedy with this whole family. Wow. And I can't imagine being Perry or any of the siblings. And you've seen your your mom dies mm-hmm. with of alcoholism. And I'm sure the alcoholism affected you growing up. Mm-hmm. Then your older brother kills himself. Mm-hmm. And we're not done yet. Because, wait, there's more. Right. Yeah. In October 1953, Fern marries a second time to Robert Hoding in San Francisco. In October 1955, close to the eighth anniversary of her mother's death, and after being married for two years, Joy, according to Rosha, jumps from the window of a hotel and was crushed under the wheels of a taxi. Oh my God. Yeah. It's just awful. Wow. Then it's in 1956 that Perry's arrested and sentenced to prison. So just to give you a clear idea when this is all going on. This is where I learned Sister Dorothy is married again, as she is the emergency contact. Or Perry, and she married to a Howard Marchant, or Marchant. And the murders occur in 59, execution in 65. No family members ever visit Perry in prison, although he did receive regular correspondence and sent regular correspondence to his father. Now, I did find the next a little interesting about his time in prison. I don't know if I sent this part to you. I might not have. He has some interesting visitors, so his family never visits him, which at Hickok had family visits. His mom would visit, his brother would visit. Granted, they lived in Kansas, so it was a little easier to do. But I would like to think if, oh gosh, I'm not even going to say it. But you, you, visit, you visit at least once. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Okay, Harper Lee visits Smith twice. Capote <laughs> three times. And neither one of them ever visited Hickok. Now, that could be because Hickok didn't want to be visited by them. I don't know. Wait, Capote never visited Hickok? Not once. On the visitor's list, he's not listed once. Really? He talked to his family, but never talked to him directly. So the information, I mean, they corresponded, though, or something? No, nothing. Because it has a list. Wow. And on the list, it tells you who they're getting regular communications from. So it has, it's a list of receives, sends, and the last one is visits. Wow. And it has a list of everybody who sends them letters and all that. Wow. Yeah, I was shocked when I saw that Capote not once visited with him. I am really shocked because, I, I mean, I just I just assumed right. that he must have talked to Hickok, but how crazy. Now, it has been rumored that they developed a relationship, Capote mm-hmm. and Smith. You mean, yeah, I, I'd heard about that. But, and it could be he just was so sympathetic to Smith, he didn't want to talk to Hickok, as he saw, I, wow. I don't know. Or it could be Hickok just didn't want to be visited by Capote. That's entirely possible. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I, well, you have blown my mind again. I try. Wow. Now, only two of Texas' children are still alive, Stanley and Dorothy. Stanley lived until he was not age 92. Dorothy married again. 
um, an Oliver Perry Pope in 1985, and she dies in 2017 at the age of 90. Mm -hmm. So she was the only one of their children, of Flo and Texas children, to make it to old age. Wow. So five children, one makes it. Wow. Tex died in May 1986 at the age of 92 in Reno. According to Rosha, he dies of a self-inflicted gunshot. Wow. Now, if you thought that stuff was interesting, and that's just, I, I got to tell you, that's just the immediate family. That absolutely blows my mind. We're going to go to the paternal side of the family to start. In the book, In Cold Blood, Truman Capote described Perry Smith as being Irish Cherokee, but he got it all wrong. And we'll find out how as we go over this. And I already gave a hint to it earlier. But first off, he was not part Irish. And if he did have any Irish, it's likely minimal. Because he was at least half Dutch on his father's side. Perry's paternal grandparents were Magdalena Adriana Vanderlei and Johann Smit. We'll call him John because that's what he went by in the U.S. They married around 1892 in South Dakota. They had three children, with Tex being the oldest. Tex would change his last name to Smith. So it starts off as Smith, S-M-I-T, and Tex changes it to Smith, huh. as would his sister Lena, huh. the youngest. Uh, and then the youngest, known as Cora, kept Smith until she married. But let's learn about his sister Lena. Lena's full name was Magdalena Adriana Smith, like her mother. She was born in 1897 in South Dakota. In 1915, she married Swedish immigrant Victor Olson in Great Falls, Montana. And they had three children at their home in Shoto. Oldest daughter, Montana Pearl, died of the flu at age 14 in 1930. Mm. Her youngest sister, Harriet Dorothy, also got the flu, ending up hospitalized at the same time that her sister dies. Mm. But she ended up being okay and lived a long life with a husband and 10 children in Salt Lake City, Utah. The middle child, Helen Jean, married Leo Andrew Ted Brown in 1935. He was 21. She was 16. Oh, my God. I wish they could see your face when I say some of this stuff. You're just like, yeah, my eye roll has been perfected. They had six children together, the youngest born around May 1947. Now, in June 1947, Jean filed for divorce from Andrew on the grounds of desertion. So they have a baby in May 1947. In June 1947, she files for divorce for desertion, which makes me wonder how long he had been gone. Was it the whole pregnancy? Wow. What I found most shocking or disturbing was the, that the judge divided the custody. So he leaves her and abandons her and the children, but yet he gets to keep three of the kids. The patriarchy must be smashed. Mm-hmm. She got the oldest daughter and two youngest daughters. And he got the middle children, two boys and one girl. Wow. I know. Now back to Lena. Her marriage to Victor ended sometime before 1939. In the Missoulian on January 12, 1939, I found the following article. It said, Victor Olson dies at local hospital. Victor Olson, about 55, died Wednesday night in a local hospital. Little is known about him here, except he was taken to the hospital from the Salvation Army headquarters Monday and was suffering with pneumonia. It is believed he has a daughter, Mrs. Ted Brown, at Garrison, but attempts to reach her have failed thus far. Wow. So they're divorced. He's wandering in a different part of Montana without any contact. Two days later in the same paper was a small note. The body of Victor Olson, who died, is at the Lucy Chapel pending funeral arrangements. A daughter, Mrs. Ted Brown, has been reached by letter and is trying to get in touch with other relatives before making burial plans. Mm. And as far as I can tell, Lena never remarried and died of 
at age 90 in Shoto. Wow. Now, you know, it seems though uninterrupted, they live very long lives. They do. And you're going to see that as we go. (laughs) Because you're going to be, yeah. So Texas' youngest sister, Cora's birth name was not Cora, but rather Cornelia Elizabeth Susanna Smith. Now, how she ended up in Indiana, I have no clue, but she did. And she got married on two separate occasions to Fred Price. They had three children and lived in Terre Haute. Woohoo! Terre Haute, the armpit of the nation. Mm-hmm. Now, one of these three children... <laughs> <laughs> you just that heard that. just you. Might have been a <laughs> delay. <laughs> they just hit me while you were saying. And I'm like, no, I always thought that was New Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, that's bad. Okay, anyhow, um, not to alienate anybody. So one of their three children was a woman by the name of Laverne Price. Laverne was born in 1926, two years before first cousin Perry, although it's doubtful they ever met. According to Wikipedia, because yes, Laverne has her own Wikipedia page. Oh my. She graduated from high school in Terre Haute in 1944. From there, she joined the All-American Girls Baseball League. Ooh. Like, you know, the movie A League of Her Own? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's trying to redeem Terre Haute, it sounds. Yes. She was an infielder and pitcher for the Milwaukee Chicks. Oh, nice. Now, she only played four games under manager Max Carey, a former Major League Baseball player and manager from Terre Haute as well. But the Chicks won the 1944 championship title against the Kenosha Comets. Ooh. Now, after baseball, Fern, as she was known by her team, went to Indiana State University and got a bachelor's and master's in phys ed. Then later on, she went on, much later on, but she got her PhD at the University of Iowa in 1970. Hmm. She worked at Indiana State as a physical instructor as well as women's softball and swimming coach, retiring in 1989. Indiana State renamed their softball field Fern Price Field. She has been inducted into the National Girls and Women's Sports Hall of Fame in 1993 and Indiana State Athletics Hall of Fame in 1998. Oh my gosh, good on her. Yep, Fern died in 2016 at the age of 90. Wow, good on her. There isn't a lot to recommend Tara Haute, but she is apparently one of the bright spots. Okay, now let's move on to the Smith children's father, Johann Smith. Or was that even his name? Ooh, mm-hmm. intriguing. John, as he was known, immigrated to the United States in 1892, most likely. Before he left the Netherlands, where he was from, he was known as Jan Scheffer. Quite a difference, isn't it? Hmm. His departure from his home in Leiden, South Holland, was likely due to the death of his wife of 26 years, Maria Josefina Helena Van Oort. Oh. John was born in 1837 in Amsterdam, one of many children. Maria Van Oort was nine years his senior and a widow when they married with five children at the end of 1865 in a town in eastern Holland called Almelo. Now, John and Maria would have four children, the last one a daughter, dying at just over one year old. Mm. And that was in 1872. The three children remaining lived long lives. Only one would come to the United States, though. His sons, Matthias and Jarrett, remained and had their own families. Now, daughter Joanna Marie Josefina Helena Sheffer, she changed her last name to Smith as well at a certain point, but she married Nicholas van der Heiden around 1891 in the Netherlands. 
Then they came to the United States soon after because they had their first child. We'll call her Jenny because trying to translate the actual, well, that's what she went by in the United States, I should be clear. But her actual um, Dutch name is tricky for me to pronounce. She was born in May 1892 in South Dakota. This may be why John came to the United States at the age of 54, Mm -hmm. even though it meant never seeing his children and grandchildren in Holland again. Wow. Yeah. So he was married to his wife for 26 years. Mm-hmm. And she dies. She dies. He moves to America and then remarries and has more children. Yes. Wow. At 56 years old, he decides to have more children. Basically, yes. So sadly for Joanna, his daughter, um, husband Nicholas Van Heiden died sometime between 1897 and 1900. Oh. Yeah. Their youngest daughter, Jaredina or Dina, was born in October 1897. Now, she married again, this time to Maurice Joseph Albertus Gunther, another Dutch immigrant, in 1901 in South Dakota. And they had one daughter, Anya Gunther. Mm. So Joanna and her new family moved to Montana, where they lived the rest of their lives. Now, Texas' mother, Magdalena Vanderlei, was the daughter of Dutch immigrants born in Pella, Iowa. And Pella, Iowa was a large Dutch community. So basically, a bunch of the Dutch, would, when they started to immigrate, they had certain areas they all would come to. It's like it was almost organized. And Pella was one of those places. Mm-hmm. Pella is in central Iowa. It's about 45 miles east-southeast of Des Moines. And it's exactly 50 miles to the south of Marshalltown, Iowa, mm. where my in-laws are at. Ah. So I believe the first settlers in Pella arrived there around 1847. Okay. So she's born in Pella in August 1855. In May 1876 in Iowa, she marries Dutch immigrant Egbert Albert Smolder. Mm. Sometime around 1886, they left Iowa, settling in another large Dutch area in South Dakota, Douglas County. And in fact, I was looking it up today, the Dutch started to move and started to settle in Douglas County around the 1880s. Hmm. And one of the first things they did was build a church. Interesting. Yeah. Of Egbert and Magdalena's six children, I want to talk about their middle child, Harriet Mulder, or Hattie. Hattie was born in 1885 in Pella, and for unknown reasons, her parents divorced when she was likely a small child, sometime between 1887 and 1892. As the youngest child was Gertie, and she was born in 1887 in South Dakota. I know they're divorced. I don't have a divorce record, but I know they divorced because Magdalena marries Johan. Okay. Smith or John. The family moved to Douglas County, South Dakota, before the divorce, around 1886. Hattie would have been considered a spinster when she married not too long before her 30th birthday to Frank Ivan Post. Mm-hmm. Woo, she was saved from chromedom just barely. I know. Back then, I mean, <laughs> come on. A man originally from Akron, Iowa. Now, in 19... 19- and they got married in 1915. But they had their first child in August 1912. Whoa. Yeah. This is very unusual for back then. Yeah. They have, and and I had to triple check and make sure that there wasn't a typo. Oh no, it's, this is accurate. (laughs) Because I found their child's birth record with their names and I found their marriage record and where they, with their, the writing and everything that I have the actual book with it. Wow. And yeah. And how, how long were they married then? What's the math on that? Oh, well, we're getting there. Okay. So they have their first child in 1912. They marry almost three years later to the day in August in 
like June or July 1915. And their son that they had in 1912 is Frank Benjamin. The family left Iowa between Frank's birth, actually between their marriage in 1915 and 1918, settling in Montana. And Eric, now, when they first settled, I believe they settled in an area of in Butte, Montana. But then they went to an area to the northern part of the state in Savoy. And Savoy is a very small town. It's closer to Chinook. Mm-hmm. But but all was not well with this relationship. The following article appeared in the Great Falls Tribune on May 11, 1918. Mrs. Hattie Post, who lives near the Crossan Ranch, has been reported to be insane, and Sheriff Mike Buckley went out and brought her to Chinook, where she will be examined by the Insanity Commission. It seems the woman has been parted from her husband and has been living alone on her claim with three small children, the oldest about seven years, and constant brooding over her troubles has upset her mind. The children will be taken in charge of the county authorities today. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's tragic. It really, really is. Now, you might be wondering, well, where is Fred? We'll get to that. Did she kill him and bury him behind the cabin? I kind of wish, but no. Damn. How I discovered this is because when I went to the 1920 census, I found Hattie as a resident or inmate at the Montana State Hospital Psychiatric Facility in Warm Springs, Montana. And it was over 300 miles to the southwest of her home. Oh, my gosh. Now, her son, Frank, in 1920, lived with a family in Savoy. Now, I tried to find the other two children. Mm -hmm. And I believe I did find one of them because I not having much to go on. All I had was the last name. I looked for any post, a child, a child with the last name post in the 1920 census living in Montana. Mm -hmm. And one name came up, a Robert post. Mm. And he was living in hot springs and he was born in 1916 and living with the Hart family. Sydney and Ida Hart, and he's listed as being adopted. Ah, and it has his name as Robert Post. He's not Robert Hart yet, mm-hmm. so that tells me he's pro- it's probably a new adoption. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not official yet. The name has not been changed, mm-hmm. so I believe it's likely him. That's at least one of her kids. I have not been able to find the other one. Okay, my guess is. And by 1920, that child was possibly the youngest, maybe a baby, and had been adopted out quick. Right, right. And we may never know. Um, but he, Robert died in St. Louis in 1990, and his name was listed as Robert Post Hart. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I'm not going to go too much in depth. It just bothered me seeing what happened to Hattie and knowing that her husband was just a, he was just a... A, a bastard. Come, thank you. I was trying not to say a bad name, and I had problems with that. I'll say it for you. Oh, he was an ass. Yeah. I mean, he leaves her there, and oh, with her, their kids. He leaves his kids. Wow. That just bothers me to no end. But it, it, it bothered me because I'm like going, I wonder if Robert knows why he was going to up for adoption. Now, clearly, mm-hmm. I mean, born in 1916, odds are he's not alive. Mm-hmm. But I did find his obituary, mm-hmm. and I think... There was at least one unique name on there, and I found her, his granddaughter, oh. and contacted her, and apparently she and her sister are planning to listen to this. Oh, so nice. Hi, you guys. I'm not going to say your names because you guys are living and don't Sorry I called that. your great-great-grandfather a bastard. <laughs> um, but I'm like, did you want to know? And I felt really odd doing it because I'm like, I was honest. I mean, I'm like, I'm coming from this podcast where we focus on killers. Mm-hmm. But hey, you know, I think I, you might be related to 
this and da da, but they were very receptive, wanted to know what I could, and so I shared the story with them. Wow. And That's really cool, though, that you were able to locate them. Yeah. I, I was very happy to be able to do that because it just didn't sit right with me. Mm-hmm. And I found myself weighing like, you know, they might know, mm-hmm. they might not. But if he, if you didn't know, once you want to about your own grandparents. Oh, yeah. I'm like insatiably curious about all kinds of things like that. Right? So, yeah. And then that opens up. So now they know and they're going to listen, I'm sure, the rest because they're going to learn a little bit more about their own genealogy mm-hmm. on this. So that they didn't know. But, um. Patty was released sometime between 1920 and 1922. I did see a note in the paper saying that she was assigned a guardian mm, mm-hmm. with a $200 bond. So I'm guessing what that meant is that she was going to be living with that person or being watched over mm-hmm. for some time out of the hospital before she could move on. Yeah. Now, as I mentioned, where was Fred? Well, in 1918, the World War One draft registration was still going on. It started in 1917, and they still had cards in 1918. And I found Fred's 1918 World War One registration card, and he was living with his family in Akron, Iowa, and listed himself as single. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then in 1920, he's still with his family in Akron, listed as single. Wow. So he yeah. well and thoroughly abandoned his family. Yes. And it can't, I can't help but wonder if when they got married and they had the kids, if he was keeping her secret the whole time, if they even knew they existed. Yeah. Wow. So anyhow, Hattie filed for divorce from Fred on the grounds of cruelty and failure to provide. And in the Butte Minor on the 4th of April, 1922, it states, because of the habitual intemperance of the defendant, Mrs. Post alleges that he failed to provide her with the necessities of life. The divorce was granted a little over a month later. Wow. Hattie regained custody of their oldest, Frank, and in June 1922, she married John DeCorey. And together, they had a daughter, Vetus, Virginia, mm-hmm. in 1925. And this daughter would make the national news in 2003 and 2007. Hopefully for something good. Mm, depends on your perspective. Uh, it was over her family's refusal to leave their home, which they claimed was theirs and their land, except for the technicality that was the public land and they had no deed, had never made paid taxes on it, had never done anything. So she became famous for squatting. Basically, it was her husband's family and her husband's family had settled there long before she did. And they just considered that land theirs. Oh, my and it, gosh. And, and part of the article, and I'll share it on the website. It's just such a long story to go into. But the the basic idea was, well, there was kind of like a, an agreement. They knew we were here and they were OK with it. And nobody ever said anything. So this is our right to stay here. We've been here for over 100 years. Wow. Wow. Mm-hmm. So did anybody buy that? Were they allowed to stay? Do you know? No. Okay. I get the impression that they were evicted. Okay. Because honestly, I mean, it doesn't take that long to get squatters rights, but I don't think you can get them from the government. I think it's no. just against other people. Because this was up in like national park type of area. I mean, that's... Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, Hattie died in, at age 63 in Butte. Her husband followed 20 years later at the age of 92. One other note about Hattie. In the 1910 census, I found her working for the Frank Hoffman family. So this is before she has children and then marries and all that. Okay, so I find her working for the Frank Hoffman family in Minor County, South Dakota. This pinged my interest because my husband's maternal family is from Minor County. Ah. But I'm like going, oh, it's just probably coincidence because there's no Hoffmans in his line. So I just didn't think about it. Then I'm looking at Hattie Closer. 
And I'm curious about the Hoffman family because she has a half-niece who was married to a Hoffman. So I'm like, oh, I wonder if they could be connected. And there was no connection. But that's why I discovered something I did not expect. Because that's when I found out that my husband has Frank Hoffman in his tree. No. Yes. Frank was the stepson of Chris's first cousin five times removed on his dad's side of the family. Wow. It wasn't even his mother's side. Wow. That, okay, so how closely related then is your husband to uh, Perry Smith? Not at all. Because okay. this was a stepson, so okay. I mean, but he was just happened to be in there, but I'm just like... How interesting. That's just wild. Okay. It, we really do live in a small world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Back to Magdalena, um, Hattie's mother. Um, she married and she went by, she had a nickname and it's, I could not figure out the Dutch pronunciation of it. It might be Lina, Lineta, I think, based on the spelling. And I had a friend going, I think I can help you. And so we're going to call her Lineta and I'm probably wrong, but that's okay. She married John around 1892, as I said before. And I found no evidence of Egbert ever marrying again. And he died in 1913. When John and Lineta married, he was 55. She was 37. Yeah, quite the age difference. Wow. And they had three children. So he had three children who were living from the previous marriage. And now he has three children. She was 37 when they got married. And she went on mm-hmm. to have three more children. Yes. That is the woman who is generous to God. Yes. Can you imagine <laughs> having giving birth in your 40s. I mean, many I women can. do, but well, yes, you're one of them, but <laughs> it's one of those things where you're just kind of like, wow. But you know, it's a lot more common than you would think. Well, it's common now, but no, it was common then. It just wasn't talked about as much. Like, it wasn't usually your first child. Mm-hmm. But I I see tons of people having their last children at 45 and 47 on these trees. But they were, I mean, this was her first child though, right? No, no. Remember, she had been married to Egbert Mulder. Oh, that's right. Okay. That makes more sense then. Because I was like, I was kind of thinking in terms of first children. Oh, okay. So, okay. I'm I'm back on track again. That's a bit unusual starting that late. In total, Lineta had nine children. John, seven. And were they raising them all together? So it wasn't 16 total, but oh, you know, they, okay. shared, they shared three. But Okay. Yeah, so they had oh, yeah, quite a few. God so love between, them. Yeah. Between 1900 and 1906, they moved to Montana. The marriage only lasted about 14 years because John Sr. died in April 1906 in Great Falls, Montana. Mm. He would have been in his late 60s. Lineta never remarried, but she did stay in Montana until at least 1910, but returned to Harrison, South Dakota, where she lived with her son, Albert Mulder, um, Albert from the first marriage, himself a widower, father of five young children, as well as her daughter, Gertie. Lineta somehow ended up in Portland, though, by 1930. Portland, Oregon, yeah, where she died in October of that year. Wow. I have no idea how she ended up there, but... There you go. Maybe she's like, I want to see the sea before I die. And then move. <laughs> That's possible. Or maybe daughter Gertie was there. I could not find Gertie after a certain point. Okay. And it could be that the marriage record got lost or whatever. And she ended up there. I just haven't been able to find her. Curious. Yeah. Lineta's parents were Adrianus Vanderlei and Gertruda Dimbert. Adrianus was born in 1820 in Endel, Netherlands to Johannes and Magdalena Adriana Vander Moore. They really love the name Magdalena Adriana. It is a beautiful name. 
It is. At the age of 27, Adrianus got on the ship Garonne of Baltimore in Rotterdam. He arrived in New York City in September 1848 and from there headed to Pella. And like I said, Pella started being settled around 1847 by Dutch immigrants. So he was among that probably that first wave. By 1850, his older brother, Peter, and family had joined him. They came in 1849, and they were all living together in the 1850 census in Pella. November 1852, Adrianus married. Now, Adrianus is 32 now. He married 23-year-old Gertruda. 30 years younger. No, no, no. He was 32. She was 23. Oh, I thought you said 52. No. 32 and 23. Like, Okay. At least they're both grown. Right. Gertruda was the eighth of 14 children born to Peter Den Bear and Gerte Stolk. Hmm. So apologies to listeners as I try to navigate these Dutch names. Eight of those 14 children died before reaching adulthood. Oh. Yeah. The Den Bear family left on the same ship as Adrianus's brother, Peter, and his family, the Franziska, which arrived in New York City in June 1849. And you guessed it, they all came to Pella. The Den Bear family had eight crates and boxes with them on the ship. Hmm. Five of the six living children came with them. Soon after arriving, Peter died. Oh my God. Leaving, yeah, leaving Gerte to navigate the new country on her own with their children. Wow. I do not know when she died, but it's likely between 1856 and 1860. Peter and Gerte were both born in the mid 1790s. So Adrianus van der Leyen marries Gertruda Dimbert in 1852. They then have at least 10 children last born in 1871. This gets interesting. Okay, in 1880, they are living in Lake Prairie, Iowa with their four youngest children. Mm-hmm. What I'm going to share now is my theory of what happened next. Ooh. Based on the facts. Okay, I'm braced. At the end of 1882, the couple celebrate 30 years of marriage. At around the same time, a new person immigrates from the Netherlands, a Focalina Tiemens, or she's known as Lena. She is around 38 and settles in Pella, near Lake Prairie. Adrianus divorces Gertruda and marries Lena in 1884, a week after his 64th birthday. His new wife is 40. So my theory is here comes this nice new person that's attractive to Adrianus, more attractive than his older wife, who's his age, Mm -hmm. and he leaves her for the younger woman. (sighs) A tale as old as time. Yes. Now, Gertruda leaves Iowa, settling in Holland, South Dakota, with her youngest daughter and family by 1900. Wait, and she, she didn't go poison their well? No, but she 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 calls herself a widow, ah. even though he's still alive. Mm-hmm. Given that she's living with her daughter, that means the daughter can't acknowledge her father either. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so, and I get the impression the kids were on mom's side. They were all with her in South Dakota. He was still in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Adriana dies in 1900. In 1902, Getroida marries Nicholas Young Award. She dies in March 1910 in Orange City, Iowa. Oh, my gosh. Now, the Dutch take impeccable records. Good on them. Yeah, because of this, I have many lines going back quite a ways. I'm not going to get too detailed in this, but I want to give an idea. Jan Sheffer, you know, John Smith, the second great-grandfather, his second great-grandfather, or Perry's fourth great-grandfather, was Cornelis Sheffer, born in 1717 in Ballenhof. Cornelis's wife's line goes even further back to Hendrik Moritz Ballert to 1620, and his wife, Minstian Senkepas. 
think of us? I think. Quick note. John was one of 15 children. <clears throat> yeah, John Smith. 15? Or John Shepherd. Yeah. Who? Very generous yeah. to God. Yeah. And his father was Hendrick Sheffer. And he was one of eight children born to his mother, Reemkin DeVries, who died at the age of 32. Wow. Well, I mean, how many children did she have in that 10 years? Whew. A lot. Wears out a body. Yeah. The Vanderlei line goes back to Willem and Pointe Antonisen Couste, likely born in late 17th century. The line going the furthest back is Adrianus's mother's paternal line, where I found Hendrik Cornelis van der Moren, born 1610. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of information up on the Dutch lines. Now, I will admit, I did not, I double checked a lot of the stuff, but they have, um, the Netherlands keeps really good, some genealogy records and people, mm -hmm. and I took, I looked at their lines and went that way, but I was triple checking things but i have to say that because that wasn't purely my research wow now you thought that was a little interesting and that was tragic in some ways mm -hmm. <laughs> that was all complicated and interesting and lots of multiple marriages and lots of children now we're going to the maternal side of the line <gasps> i'm intrigued so we're gonna learn more about florence julia pearl flo buckskin she was born in Nevada in 1902 to Nookie Buckskin and Margaret Louise Catherine Cortez. She was their fifth child. Flo grew up around Mineral Hill, Nevada, which today is a ghost town. Her mother and Perry's grandmother was Maggie Cortez, and she was born in 1866 in Mineral Hill. Now, Mineral Hill is in Eureka County, which is 80 miles to the west of Eli, Nevada, which is not a very big town itself, hmm. but it's off the freeway, so there you go. The highway, I should say, and 246 miles to the west of Reno. I mean, to the east. Yeah, I was going to say there's not much west of Reno that's yeah. still in Nevada. No, it's, there's nothing west of Reno that's in Nevada. <laughs> okay, but you're right. Yeah, no, to the east of Reno and almost 120 miles straight south of Elko. It sits along U.S. Highway 50, which you can actually drive from Ocean City, Maryland to Sacramento, California. Well, who knew? Road trip. I'm not quite sure who Maggie's parents were were, but there's some clues and a theory by her granddaughter researching the line. In 1900 and 1910, there was an addition to the census, a special Indian population count. Now, that census asked several interesting things. What tribe was one among them? And also, how Indian are you? Oh, my God. Yeah. And are you living on a reservation? Different those yeah. types of questions. Yeah. Now, the Buckskin family did not live on a reservation. Never did. That I can find. But anyhow, I found Maggie's mother in 1900 living with the family. She was born in March 1850 in Nevada and was listed, and you saw this a lot, as Indian Mary. Interesting. My guess is she didn't have a last name. And mm -hmm. so the officials just said, Indian Mary. Wow. Did you mention what tribe she's she was a part of? I'm getting to that. Okay. I was like, did I miss that? Okay. No. And Indian Mary was full-blooded Shoshone. Mm. Maggie is listed as being half native, but although in 1910, she was listed as full blood, but I tend to believe this more. Okay. And you'll find out why. So who was her dad? Well, and this is so coming from her grandmother. There's a theory, but it's not proven. Okay. So we don't know for sure. That her mother Mary was involved with a married man by the name of Edward Dean. Okay. Interestingly enough, 
If it proved to be true that Edward Dean's the father of Maggie, it would mean Maggie's half-brother would be a man by the name of John Dean, who started as a frontier scout with the U.S. Army in 1881, then became an Indian fighter, taking part in the capture of Geronimo. Whoa. Yeah. I did want to look up some information on the Shoshone to understand because trying to find their records is very difficult. And it's because, according to this article I found on the Western Shoshone Indians in Nevada by Danny L. Noss, there is no actual recorded history of the Western Shoshone Indians. Interesting. Yeah, everything was passed down from elders for generations. Mm -hmm. And the first recorded history of Shoshone Indian contact was in 1827. Okay. And that was when... Jedediah Smith made contact and relayed information to Lewis and Clark, or Meriwether Clark of Lewis and Clark. The Western Shoshone were nomadic, and they traveled most of the Western U.S., which I find interesting given that Flo moved so often, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure John was a big part of it, but Mm -hmm. I just found that fascinating. Yeah. So, okay, and I found this part in particularly interesting. With the coming of the first white men, the Shoshone Indians had no idea that their freedom to roam the countryside and the way of life as they knew it would soon disappear. The Shoshone Indians signed a treaty on August 7, 1855 in good faith, But, naturally, the U.S. government refused to ratify the treaty because it was felt that Garland Hunt, who was an Indian agent, overstepped his authority in offering the Shoshone Indians the treaty. Oh, wow. Yeah, it did not take the Shoshone long to realize that words on a treaty document did not have any meaning to the white man. Wow. And they also realized that they might win a battle, but they would never win the war. Because there were too many white men and they could not defeat them all. Wow. Um, There was a treaty of 1863 that was signed and it was allowing the white man to start settling on the Shoshone Indians land. And the Shoshone were agreeing not to attack them, basically. Well, when Nevada became a state, things got worse for Shoshone. Mm -hmm. And compared to the area of land that the Shoshone Indians used to roam across, the amount of land that they were allowed after Nevada became a state was a travesty. Since at least 1951, the Shoshone Indians have been in litigation with the United States government to retrieve some of their land taken from them after the Treaty of 1863. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that battle is still going on. Oh my gosh. And it it might be one of those battles like the recent Oklahoma one where they're claiming this is still our land. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, if we ever get around to actually doing reparations... For mm-hmm. both African Americans and Native Americans. Right. Wow. I mean, right. I think they deserve it. Um, oh, yeah. I just, I, I mean, this whole country was built on their backs. And so it's like, how can we repay that? We need to try. I'm not saying that just because it seems oh, hard, we shouldn't do it. But I'm just, it blows my mind when I think of these things that happened, you know? It's it's, it's so much. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, around 1887 or so, Maggie became involved with an immigrant, an Italian immigrant by the name of Joseph Trevelli, who was 20 years her senior. She's in his 20s, he's in his 40s. There's no evidence they ever married, but they had at least three children together. Spicy. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Jimmy, or James, William Raymond, and Hattie Louise. Hmm. In 1894, Maggie was involved with Nookie Buckskin, also a full-blooded Shoshone. They had their first child in April 1895, but didn't marry until 1897 or 98. And I got that from the census. Okay. Where it's like, how long have you been married? Two years. (laughs) Um, Together they had, in this order, Webb Victor, George, who died by age four or five, Mm. Mary Pearl, Sylvia Emmeline, or Emma, Flo, 
and Nevada Rosa. They were all born in Mineral Hill. I have to mention, too, they had really good names for their kids. They did. They're great names. Not much is known about Nookie. He was born in March 1872 in Nevada and died young, likely between 1910 and 1920. Mm. By 1930, though, Maggie moved to San Francisco with at least three of her children, Rosa, Webb, and William. And this is likely why Flo came to San Francisco by 1935, as her mother was there. Oh, that makes sense. Now, what I found interesting was that on every other census, she's listed as Indian. Mm -hmm. There was no Native American option back then. Right. In the 1930 census, she lists herself and her family as white. That may have been advantageous for them to do it that way. Yes. Mm-hmm. If they, they were probably blending mm-hmm. and pass or passing mm-hmm. for unfortunate reasons that that was the mm-hmm. safest way to live at, at that time. Yep. She remained in San Francisco until her death at age 82 in, at a San Francisco hospital, nine months after the death of daughter Flo in July ni- 1948. Mm. And I found an amazing story about the buckskins, and I am going to have that on the website. Mm-hmm. It's by a man by the name of Harry E. Webb called Ti- Teenage Lion Hunters. Well, and, you have to share. Okay, well, then I'll share, and then I will read part of the story. Okay. And then I'll have the whole thing on the website for people to read in full. Okay. So this Harry Webb apparently was a neighbor of the Buckskin family. He says, um, in those early days, BMLs had nothing on my two of my Pine Valley neighbors. The girls in this little drama were of Shoshone blood. And as for bravery and versatility, Emmeline and Florence Buckskin could put the old timers in the back seat. In the 1916, the government had declared war on every breed of predatory animal and in subsequent years employed hundreds of hunters and trappers. But the cunningest of all killers of grown stock was the mountain lion. One particular lion in the area was not only a savage killer, but also a loner and exceptionally bold. It also seemed to have a preference for horse flesh, particularly for those belonging to the Buckskin family. Nookie and Maggie Buckskin had a small ranch near Mineral Hill with a few cows, a couple of dozen good saddle and work horses, And so many children, they were like the old woman who lived in the shoe. (laughs) Apparently, there was like 12 children. I can only find the names of some of them. Good on them. Yeah. The two, and that includes um, her children before they married. The two older boys were away fighting the Kaiser's armies, and an older sister, Hattie, was married. The youngest boy, Webb, and four kid sisters, Emma, Florence, Mary, and Nevada Rose, remained at home. And there had been some losses. Um, among the ranch horses. So Nookie set traps around the carcasses of the animals that had been lost. And one day he found a horse carcass covered over with sticks, tree limbs, and raked up dirt. According to legend, this was a sure sign of a lion kill and that Mr. Lion had covered the horse for future use and return. But after Nookie set traps around the carcass, the lion never came back. Hmm. To outwit the lion or lions, Nookie took to keeping his horses in the stockade corral, but this was a nuisance and used up winter hay. After there had been no loss for a week, the family decided their horse killers had moved away to satisfy their appetites on deer and sheep. One November morning before sunrise, Nookie went out to the corral to let the horses out in the big pasture. On reaching the gate, he noticed that the horses were moving nervously about. Suddenly, a big lion leapt off an old shed roof onto a horse's neck, and the horse dropped as if felled by a sledgehammer. With a yell, Nookie ran for his rifle, but on his return, the lion was headed across the meadow with the little dog yipping in pursuit. (laughs) The commotion, yeah, you gotta love the little dogs. The commotion brought the family running to the corral where the horse lay thrashing about. 
It's Brownie, little Nevada Rose screamed. He's killed Brownie. Oh, Daddy, do something. Don't let him die. Brownie was a girl's pet horse, and she was inconsolable. Mm. Just then, a neighbor rode up. He and Nookie had planned on going to a silver prospect, but the bedlam of crying girls changed that plan in a hurry. <laughs> As it should. <laughs> yes. So the bullet that had been meant from the lion ended Brownie's suffering. Exasperated, Nookie sent word to the chief of the biological survey in Reno to send up a government trapper with lion dogs. Mm -hmm. But since no such hunter was available, it was up to the buckskin family to make out the best they could. Mm -hmm. By December, no more horses had been harmed, and the family believed the little dog's chase had scared the lion away for keeps. Then on one Sunday in December... Nookie, Maggie, and Webb went to do some work on the silver vein, leaving the four girls at the ranch. Emma, 16, and Florence, 15, were to keep watch over the pastured horses, while their younger sisters, Mary and Nevada Rose, were left to their own devices. At noon, Emma and Florence galloped home for a hurried bite to eat. On returning to the pasture, they saw where a horse had slid down a steep hillside in the light snow. They could tell from the first scattered marks that a lion had leapt from the juniper tree onto one of the horses. Still mounted, they were staring in wonderment when some magpies flew from the sagebrush in the draw below. There the girls saw the lion tearing at the neck of a dead horse. So they cautiously retreated out of the animal's sight to form plans. Emma, Florence chattered, you hurry back and get Daddy's gun. Hurry fast and bring the twenty-two rifle, too. I'll stay and watch, and if it leaves, I'll try and scare him up a tree. It took but a few minutes for Emma to race the half-mile home, grab Nookie's twenty-five thirty-five carbine, and the 22 pump action Winchester. The lion was still eating when Emma returned. Sneaking through junipers, the girls selected a good spot and opened fire, dropping the beast in his tracks. Uncircling the carcass, guns ready, the girls could see that Emma's 25-35 bullet had torn half the animal's skull away, and Florence's 22 had entered its ribs. But, in their excitement, they put several more slugs in him for good measure. <laughs> I have to admit, I would probably do that as well. <laughs> yes. As Nookie said later, that lion skin looks like the girls had been practicing on it all day with shotguns. <laughs> <sighs> so, that's kind of a, a summation of what happened. But just killing the lion and ending their horse's losses wasn't quite enough. Emma and Florence decided to make a trophy. After Lion was weighed, tipping the steel yards at 135 pounds and measuring just over 9 feet, the girls carefully skinned it. Then they spread a paste of cooked oatmeal and saltpeter over the flesh side for tanning. When the skin was tan and pliable, they sewed it back to shape. Then with the help of Lil Nevada Rose, who was a natural-born sculptress and designer, they stuffed the lion skin with straw and paper. And all of us who viewed the somewhat shortened form caused by tanning pronounced it an excellent job of taxidermy. <laughs> By God, they wanted a trophy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's great story. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Wow. Those are some tough little girls, man. Yes. I'm going to talk about some of their children. We're going to start with Maggie's children with Trevelli. Okay. The man she was involved with. One of their ch children was William Raymond, who was born around 1891. Or not around. He was born in 1891. William Raymond lived a long life with the wife and child, and he also served um, in the Army during World War I. William died in 1978. He was 86. Wow. Now, his brother, Jimmy, also served in World War I. He did fill out a World War II draft card, and he was described as being 5'9", 150 pounds, gray hair, brown eyes with light skin, and ethnicity, white. 
I found him in 1951 working as a deputy sheriff in Eureka County, Nevada, hmm. in the newspaper. He died at age 76. Then there's daughter Hattie, who was born in 1893, the last of the children with Trevelli, who married Pietro Carletti, a Swiss immigrant, in 1915. He was 58. She was 21. Oh, my. Yes. They had four children, two girls and two boys. And I'm going to talk about the two oldest, Marguerite and Renee. Marguerite was born 1916 in Utah and married at age 20 in Seattle, Washington, to a man originally from North Dakota by the name of Donald H. Kitts. He was the son of Henry and Annie Kitts. Hmm. Donald's older brother, Alexander, Alex, had married Marguerite's younger sister, Renee, the year before in 1935. Oh, that's sweet. When Renee was 17, Alex was 28. <sighs> yeah. Wow. And they returned to Nevada. Now, I'm sure hindsight is 2020, but Renee was young, and she and Alex had four children before 1940. And that's when things kind of went wrong. The Nevada State Journal on the 4th of December, 1940, Eureka Court holds session. Jo Judge Clark J. Gill presided a session of the district court in Eureka last week when Alexander Kitts pleaded guilty to a charge of grand larceny. He was given a sentence of from 1 to 14 years. Hmm. And he was arrested with a man by the name of J.H. Scott, accused of the theft and slaughter of a calf. Oh. Yeah. Hmm. On May 7th, 1941, Alex received a conditional pardon from the Nevada State Board of Paroles and Pardons. And he'd later get in trouble in 1950 for failing to register as an ex-con in Reno. Really? Yes. Interesting. Now, Marguerite and Donald also returned to Nevada, and they had two children. Then in April 1942, Donald H. Kitts is found dead. Donald Henry Kitts was found dead in a garage in the rear of his home late last night. And police say he hanged himself. Oh, no. Yeah, his widow, who found the body, told police he had been despondent recently. Now, this is the cool thing that happens from this death, though. After Donald's death, Marguerite enrolled in school at the Capitol College of Pharmacy in Denver. She graduated in 1947 and became a licensed pharmacist for Colorado and Nevada. Oh, my gosh. In, in fact, she was the first fully licensed woman pharmacist in Nevada. Oh my gosh, that's cool. Yep. She married and she's working woman with her kids and she marries a man by the name of Anton Snyder in 1952 and they have a long marriage. Now, Renee was still married to Alex for a time. He goes and serves in World War II. He comes back. They divorce. She got married and divorced again before 1955 and then married a man by the name of Leonard McCormick around 1955. Now, in the meantime, Hattie, so this is half aunt to Perry, went on to outlive two of her children, making it to her 103rd birthday before dying in 1996. Oh my gosh. Her daughter, Marguerite, the pharmacist, mm -hmm. lived to be 101. Oh my gosh. Now I'm going to talk about Nookie's children, just a couple of them. Um, so this is Flo's siblings, or the aunts and uncles for Perry. They had their son, Webb Victor. He died young, close to his 44th birthday in March 1939 in San Francisco. I have no idea why. These are all of Flo's full serve siblings. So I found the following about Sister Mary Pearl. Pearl was the oldest girl of Nookie and Maggie born in 1900. 
Like her half-sister, Hattie, she lived a long life, dying just two weeks after turning 104. Whoa. Yeah. Outliving her second husband, Philip Guernsey, 11 years her junior, mind you, by 35 years. Oh, my gosh. They would have one child when she was 46 in Los Angeles County, California. Wow. This is a long-lived family when you give them the yes. chance. So could you imagine if Flo hadn't gotten into the alcohol and, or maybe gone with somebody other than Tex? Granted, that means there would be mm-hmm. no Carrie Edward Smith. How do I think about that? Is that a... Okay. <laughs> she could have been alive today. Right. But... Well, maybe not. I'm thinking of... Sorry, never mind. Yeah. Because um, I was thinking of her son who was born in 1928. Right. But he was executed, so never right. mind. Okay. Let's just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but then in, in um, October 1966, Pearl and Philip had a scary experience. And in some ways, it kind of is reminiscent of what her nephew did. A prison campus, and this is in the Independent on Tuesday, October 4th, 1966. And the article's by... Art Vinsel. Prison camp escapee surrendered quietly Monday after a 13-hour spree in which, according to police, he held a couple hostage overnight, robbed a tavern, and tried to kill a Long Beach police sergeant in a point-blank gun duel on a quiet neighborhood street. Wow. He was arrested, and apparently after his arrest, Mrs. Eileen Larkins told police he had tried to force her way into her home at gunpoint. Lady, open the door quick, he panted, according to Mrs. Larkins, but she slammed it shut. Good on her. Smart lady. The violent chain of events apparently began about 12.30 a.m. when a young man, fitting Wilson's description, knocked on the door of a steel rigger's home as he and his wife watched television. Open the door, Pop. I'm coming in, the man told Philip W. Guernsey, 55, of 2142 Elm Avenue. Guernsey said the man's breath was heavy with the smell of alcohol. Guernsey and his wife... Marie, or Mary Pearl, 65, were forced to sit side by side on a couch, and the intruder sat in front of them on a chair, flicking his gun toward either one of they moved. The Guernsey said he shared a strange tale of escape from an adult authority camp and a long hike through rugged mountains during which he slept in the woods and shot jackrabbits for food. About 1 a.m., they said he asked instructions for calling long distance and telephoned someone whom he talked to as though it was his father apologizing for all the quote-unquote, all the trouble. The man's mood switched drastically from polite and apologetic to grim and belligerent, the Guernsey said, and at one point he even unloaded his pistol and let the hostage examine it. The gun-like bulge inside his jacket, however, kept Guernsey from subduing him. That and he's 55 years old and dealing with this crazy guy. Wow. After a lonely night of terror, including two sleepless hours while the couple lay listening to him apparently sleeping on their couch, the mysterious man left. Quote, I guess I better not bother you good people any longer, he said, after having coffee with them. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, and another quote, you better be off to leave your gun here, son, Guernsey called as the man walked away. The intruder did not answer. Oh, my yeah. God. Subsequent investigation Monday night revealed that Wilson was sentenced to Chino State Prison for December 1964 gunpoint robbery of a cab driver in Linwood, which netted $90. Oh, my God. Is that Chino, California? Yes. Or do we? Okay. Wow. So Okay, that's terrifying. This is in Newport Beach where they were living. Okay. That's terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it came out so much better for them than the, like the Clutter family, but here comes this criminal who's been in prison with a gun. Wow. And what is his relationship to Perry Smith? He doesn't ha- Oh, it was Mary 
Guernsey is his aunt. Okay. So Flo's sister. Wow. And that is the family tree of Perry Edward Smith. Wow. That was so full of ups and downs and drama and comedy. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've had one quite as exciting. Right? I mean, I, honestly. I was so excited about sharing this with you because it's it's so different and so wow. cursed in so many ways and yeah. all over the place. Yeah. It, I, I really see what you're saying about the curse, though. Yeah. And at first, I thought maybe the curse came from his mother's side of the family. But I really think it was his dad's side of the family. Yeah. Because <laughs> now... I, I'm not saying he did this, but I find it interesting that his grandfather, Johann Smith, or Jan Scheffer, comes across and doesn't just change his name. I mean, he changes it completely. Jan could be John. Yeah. I get that. But why go from Jan Scheffer to Johann Smith? Mm-hmm. So it's like, I'm like, is there a criminal element? Because that's how my brain goes. Was he leaving yeah. and trying to hide? Yeah. Did he kill his wife? I mean, granted, she was older, and it probably was old mm-hmm. age, but, you know, these are the thoughts that go through my head. Like, I have to tell you, I'm right there with you, because that is really unusual. Yeah, it's one thing to you change know? your name a little, but that's... You know, but, and even then, Sheffer, I mean, Sheffer Schaefer, that's really common yeah. here. So he wouldn't necessarily have had to even change it at all, just to, you know, anglicize it. Yeah, you and know? it's not even hard for most... Americans even back then to pronounce Sheffer. Yeah. So I'm, I am also intrigued and dear listeners, if you know answers to the mystery of the name change, we're all ears. Yes. You know, I triple checked that because, but I found that his daughter had come over as well and they were living in this area Mm -hmm. and it just all fit. But now it could be there's a mistake and that's not the same. But I don't think so. I think that's the same. Yeah. Wow. But, you know, this thing. Well, thank you for this really interesting roller coaster You're through history. Welcome. And I, I do want to say it's, it's one of those things. And I was thinking about this the other day. And part of the reason I enjoy doing this is we don't often think about the families of the killers. Mm-hmm. I was curious, more like, ooh, I wonder if there's lots of murder. Is there a genetic component? Because that's how my brain works. Mm-hmm. But knowing my own family, and I have some crazy people in there. Well, okay, so maybe there is some relation. But I, <laughs> um, I was, I really feel for the families, especially mm-hmm. the ones that are still living. And he has cousins that are still alive, and my guess is they don't want to acknowledge his existence because that mm-hmm. would have been a dark part of their history. Oh yeah, and I can't blame them. Yeah. Well, and even I mean, the extended family seems more or less normal. Mm-hmm. You know, on both sides. Yeah. You know, and I'm like, why was there no real intervention? I mean, (laughs) it's like, what happened that that family was so estranged that instead of the kids ending up with cousins and aunts and uncles and, you know, that sort of thing, they ended up literally in orphanages, foster care, and then just going out on their own really young. Right. Because, you know, Maggie, her, I mean, most of her kids ended up being in a good place. They didn't have issues. I didn't, you know, talk about all the kids, but they all were in pretty good situation. It's just flow. So it can't. Mm-hmm. It makes me sit there and go, could that be related to Tex more than anything else? Because mm-hmm. Tex showed early signs. I mean, he gets this family in Montana and then divorces and abandons them like they never existed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It makes me think Tex wasn't 
that good of a guy. And maybe he's the one who introduced the drinking to Flo yeah. and got her hooked. Yeah. You know, there's mm-hmm. so many elements. Mm-hmm. Or maybe she was drinking anyway and that the two of them fed off of each other in such a negative mm-hmm. way. It yeah. turned into something And then awful. all the head injuries. Yes. The head injuries occur. It's like, oh my gosh. I mean, this really is a tragic story, mm-hmm. but we will always have the girls who killed the mountain lion. Yes, and that makes it all worthwhile. Well, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for joining us. And don't forget, you can go onto the website and you'll see some of the pictures of people that I've discussed, as well as some news articles and the full story about the mountain lion. And we're going to be taking an extended break. We're going to take a holiday break. That way I can get things done for my family for Christmas this year. <laughs> Theoretically. <laughs> How, what a novel idea. Yeah, like big cookies and stuff like that. Things I didn't really do last year. I was so stressed last year. <laughs> You're such a good mom. I try. <laughs> but um, I don't see any serial killers in your future. Uh, sometimes I wonder about my oldest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, be careful she doesn't get any head injuries. Oh. That's my my only advice there because I know very little about children. So <laughs> Yes, but when we do come back, we're planning to come back in January. Um, I think maybe the 6th or maybe the 15th. Not quite sure. Our next topic is going to be... The Green River Killer. Dun, dun, dun. Gary Ridgeway. And I'm already researching his tree. It's going to be a little interesting. A little more boring than this one. <laughs> well, if you don't have two girls killing a mountain lion and then stuffing it themselves, it's hard to top that. I know. I mean, it's very hard to top this one. This is pretty but incredible. But I love that story. This okay. is so much fun, Denise. I hope you have happy holidays. You too. And, um, and it's been lovely as always. Thank you so much for joining us on Murderous Roots, where murder and family meet. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode, and please leave us a review. You can find more information on this episode and others at MurderousRoots.com. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, you can email us at podcast at MurderousRoots.com.